Matthew chapter 22. Continuing in our series through the gospel according to Matthew. This morning our text is Matthew 22 verses 34. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Follow along as I read God's holy word. When the Pharisees heard, he had silenced the Sadducees gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law. May God bless the reading of the word. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, our, our text before us includes Jesus teaching us how important this is. I pray as we dig into your word, the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to understand these truths, to receive these truths, to apply these truths. Love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, brothers and sisters. I'd ask you to have your Bibles open to this passage. I'd also ask you to have your outlines nearby. We'll refer to them often. If you are watching online, you can find the notes at providencechurchsd.org. Now we are Providence Church. Same wonderful church, same wonderful people, same wonderful word of God. Cooler name. Our text before us this morning is probably one we're familiar with. Uh, if you've been a Christian for more than a couple of years, odds are, even if you haven't read this passage, you've heard it or heard others talk about it. And, and that familiarity with this passage is a very, very good thing. This is very much a passage we as children of God should be familiar with and should understand. As we come across passages that are familiar to us, it's really good to remind ourselves of the context. So let's remind ourselves of the context before us. We are celebrating Palm Sunday today as we are in this text before us. This is just a couple of days after the very first Palm Sunday. So a lot of times in Christendom, we'll refer to this last week of Jesus's life as the Passion Week. Enters... Uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, crucified on Good Friday, is risen on Resurrection. We're in the last few days of Christ before the death on the cross. In chapter 22, there is a, a risen um, desire in the enemies of Jesus to bring down Jesus. So as we're in chapter 22, we saw in chapter 22, verse 15, the Pharisees tried to trick Jesus with a question they didn't think he could handle. In chapter 22, verse 23, the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus in a question they didn't think he could handle. Jesus was ready for both questions. After both of their failed attempts, we see in verse 34, they're basically silenced. But then we see 
one more man attempt in verse 35. In the New King James Version, version, he's identified as a lawyer. Maybe your version says something like an expert in the law. That's probably a better way to translate that just because our culture has lawyers and the lawyers of our culture are different than the lawyers of Jesus Christ. So in our culture, when we say lawyer, it's someone who represents someone who knows the law, but basically in our culture, the lawyer tries to use or even misuse the law on behalf of their client, okay? Um, not to diminish, we obviously have very good lawyers that we're thankful for. Of the lawyers of Jesus' day, and you can kind of see it in the phrase, law-er. The, the lawyers of Jesus' day, they were experts in the law, specifically in this situation, an expert in the Mosaic law. So uh, the way our Bible is broken down into, into 66 books, we usually, and maybe Christians will refer to those first five books as either the books of Moses or the Pentateuch. Uh, the Jews usually refer to those first five books as the Torah. Okay? In these five books of Moses, there are, according to Jewish tradition, 613 laws. This lawyer, this expert in the law, would have been very familiar with the 613 laws in our first five books of the Bible. We see in verse 35 that when this lawyer approaches Jesus, he comes attempting to test this is not a test in the sense, let's see how smart he is, or a test in the sense, let's see if he's got good wisdom in this. This is a test in the sense, let's, they all failed in trapping Jesus. I won't. I will bring a question that will turn his followers away from him. The question being, what's the great commandment in the law? And that seems like a fair question, but this lawyer who has given his life to studying the law, who talks to other people that study the law, this was a super controversial question. This was the kind of question that made other lawyers mad at each other as they tried to answer and give their opinion. So Jesus having a Jewish audience that didn't have the same familiarity as the lawyer, but certainly knew those laws, he believed the audience of Jesus, those followers of Jesus, they would hear Jesus' answer and they would disagree. Or they would hear Jesus refuse to answer. And they would say, well, then clearly he's not worth following if he can't answer this question. So they had, this lawyer had the belief, this is the question that will turn the followers of Jesus. Jesus, the great command. There were some times where Jesus was given questions that he knew were trick questions and he refused to answer. And there were times people came with questions with trick questions and Jesus very much wanted to answer. This is a time where Jesus knew the people in the following needed the answer and you and I, as his disciples 2,000 years later, needed to hear the truth. We needed to hear the truth of the question. Here's the truth. 
Verse 37, Jesus said to him, answering the question, what's the great commandment in the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the answer to the question, what's the great commandment in the law? Before we get into it, let's do a quick synopsis of law. This is Roman numeral two, letter A in your notes. In the Old Testament, and I, let me start by saying not all Christians will agree with but in, in the Old Testament, when we're looking at law, we can break it down into three different categories. First category, let's call the moral law. For my fellow note takers, get out your pen and write down next to moral law, ten commandments. Okay? The moral law is what we refer to as the ten commandments. The ten commandments, these, these establish the laws of morality for all people for all time. The moral law is the unchanging law of God because it's founded on the unchanging character of God. The moral law is a reflection of God's perfect character. So as we obey the moral law, we are very much living as those imitators of Christ that we are to be. We are living as God designed us to, as we are acting out, living out morality based on the perfect character of God. And that's unchanging. So way, way before Moses came down the mountain holding those tablets with the Ten Commandments, murder was wrong. Cain knew that. When God said to Cain, where is your brother? Cain didn't say, well, I killed him and I was never told that was wrong. Cain's answer was, I don't know. Why, why was his answer a lie? Because he knew he did wrong. There was a handful of people on the earth and morality was already in place and morality was in line with the unchanging Ten Commandments because it was in line with the unchanging character of God. When we are talking about the moral law, it always And that's included in the laws that we see in the first five books of the Bible. But the first five books of the Bible also include what we're going to call civil law, or maybe in some Christian books, judicial law. Now, the judicial law, the civil law of God, this is for the theocracy of Israel. Theocracy means nation ruled by God. Now, picture, let's go back in time and let's imagine as Moses is leading those Israelites, Moses is leading a people that have only known slavery. They should have kept the moral law, but they had no right to establish laws for their nation because they were a nation in slavery. So the Egyptians said, this is your law. But now they've left slavery. They're about to enter the promised land. They're about to be an independent nation ruled by God. And as such, they need laws for a civilization. That's a very appropriate thing for a civilization to have. So God, because he's the ruler of this nation, doesn't just give them moral law, but also gives them law as they live neighborly one with another. Now, those laws for the theocracy of Israel, you and I, we have to keep the moral law. You and I don't have to keep the civil laws that were given to the theocracy of Israel. The principles are still really, really good. Because the principles are based on the moral law, 
but there are very much things for that culture that don't apply today. Let me give you an example. Deuteronomy 22.8 says, when you're building your house, build a barrier around your roof. My sister and her husband just bought a new house. That new house they just bought does not have a barrier around their roof. My sister loves the Lord. Her husband loves the Lord. They desire with all their heart to honor the Lord. They did not build a roof, and they, if they were to read that verse, they would have no guilt about not building a barrier around their roof because they know that was a civil law for that culture that had very different way of living. So in that culture, way before air conditioning, the coolest place to be in the evening was on the roof. So you would go up on your roof. You know, the sun would be beating on you, so in the morning it would be too hot. But in the evening... You'd go up on that roof, you'd feel such a nice breeze coming. So that was a wonderful place to celebrate dinner, very common to invite over neighbors, invite over family members, and enjoy fellowship together on the roof. Because there's so many people on the roof, there was that possibility for an accident that somebody might trip and fall off the roof. So the law was, because you care about human life, spend extra money to build a higher barrier on your roof so that when you have people on the roof, they don't fall off. You okay with that idea? Now that principle is kept all over America. Every city in San Diego has a law, if you have a swimming pool, you have to have a fence around your whole perimeter of your house, and then you also have to have a fence in between your door and the swimming pool. That's a barrier just in case a little neighbor kid uh, comes in so that they don't fall in the pool and so that a kid in your own house doesn't sneak out and fall into the pool. That is a perfect example of bringing the perf this wonderful godly principle that we see in the, excuse me, in the civil laws of the, of the laws of Moses brought to a common practical uh, law for our civilization. So that's a Law, the principle is beautiful, that might change over and over and over and over and over again, okay? And that's okay. So we don't have to literally keep every single civil law that we see in the first five books of Moses, okay? Also have our third category, ceremonial law. Now, ceremonial law revolves around the feasts, the uh, sacrifices, all these things. That, picture how big the sacrifices were in the Old Testament. The entire book of Leviticus is for the priests so they can properly instruct the people, this is how you sacrifice as unto the Lord. Exceptionally important in the Old Testament times, we 100% do not do those things today. You disrespect the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, you continue offering sacrifices. We no longer sacrifice the lamb because the perfect lamb of God came. The book of Hebrews helps us with this idea. So we have these three different categories. And as we grow, we, we just covered our biblical worldview class. As we grow in having a stronger biblical worldview, growing in wisdom to properly apply God's perfect law in our changing situations, and we see the moral law of God, keep it. 
when we see the civil law of God, we ask ourselves, what's the principle behind that? And how might I honor God keeping that today? And when we see the ceremonial law of God, we praise the Lord that Jesus kept it all. It was the fulfillment of the, that law according to the book. Are we okay with those three things? I'm asking a question I know you can't answer back because I got a microphone in you. If you struggle with that, then let me know, okay? This is an important principle for us. So we have to understand this law. Now let's back up a little bit and understand when this question was being asked, Jesus had not yet died on the cross. That was coming a few days later. So at the time Jesus answered this question, the ceremonial law was still in place, okay? And so there is asking, what's the great commandment of the law? Now Jesus knows how that question should be answered and he draws them to the moral law. But he doesn't answer with the moral law. He answers with the right way to see the moral law. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He brings the answer into the sphere of love. And I almost feel like I need to take a detour and explain love because our culture is weird with love. Amen. Um, we have a phrase in our culture, I fell in love. My kid this morning, my youngest was falling on purpose to amuse himself. I am at an age I no longer fall to amuse myself. When I fall, it's an accident and it hurts really, really bad. But that's the phrase we use, I fell in love. I kind of know what you mean, Christians, stop using that phrase. Biblical love is not a painful accident. Beautiful, biblical love is beautiful. Vodi Bakum has a wonderful definition of love. It's in your notes under letter B. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. Emotion is included, but doesn't start with emotion. Biblical love starts with an act of the will. It's an, an intentional choice. I choose of my own thinking to love. And emotion has to be included. We're not robots. I make that choice. I'm, I'm accompanying it with emotion. And it leads to a positive action. So if we say, if I say, I love you, but I do nothing, or if I say I love you and then do something hurtful, I don't understand biblical love. Biblical love leads to godly actions on behalf of that object, that person, that country, that nation, fill in the blank. Love, the perfect example of love, covered this last week in Sunday school, Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God placed his love on unlovely sinners. And it led to the action of Jesus Christ coming to this world to die on the cross to take away our sin. That's love. That's the example and model of love. That's behind when Jesus says the great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
Now, when Jesus says this, he didn't pull that quote out of nowhere. That came from the Old Testament. In letter C, yeah, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. In Hebrew, this is called the Shema. And the word Shema is the word for hear. You look at the first word of Deuteronomy 6, 4, it's the word hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your This came in Deuteronomy 6. Now the word Deuteronomy literally means second giving of the law. So law is very specifically the moral law. The first giving of the moral law was in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. That's when Moses came down the mountain and was holding those two great stones. Okay, written that only the Ten Commandments were written in stone. The civil law, the ceremonial law was not written in stone. It's different. Moral commands were written in stone. That's the first time Moses gave them. He gave them to the Israelites who just escaped Egyptian bondage. And they said, all that God has spoken, we will do. And that was a lie. The Israelites sinned time and time again. The Israelites refused to enter the promised land. So they were put in the situation where they had to wander for 40 years. In those 40 years, that sinful, rebellious generation died off, and their children became adults. Their children then became the human leaders of the tribe of Israel. The book of Deuteronomy, where we're in Matthew, we're studying the last week of Jesus' life before the cross. Deuteronomy is basically the last week of Moses' life. That's Moses giving his final report, final commands, final bit of history to that nation that was about to conquer the promised land as led by Joshua. So in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses repeats the moral law. Moses repeats the Ten Commandments, Deuteronomy chapter 6. So right after the Israelites heard, no other gods, uh, don't make idols, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain, honor your parents, all those good things, then Moses brings it into the sphere of love. You keep the commands God gave you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This love, it, there's, there's many aspects of this love that come out in this verse. First of all, we, we see it's a required love. You shall love the Lord your God. Not it would be a good idea. Not, it's my recommendation, it's a command. You shall love the Lord your God. And it's possible when I said that, some of you cringe. Don't like being. I like to make decisions for myself. Thank you very much. Especially love. Nobody should tell me who or what I should love. Listen very carefully. In our country, not all laws are good. 
but every law of God. Every single law of God is God sharing his love with you. And when God requires us to do things, that is not a burden, that's a blessing. It's like saying, I require you to breathe. Don't tell me what to do. <gasps> it's for your good. Breathing is a good thing. I have to tell my adult karate students, they hold their breath and try really hard. Breathe. <gasps> then life is better because they start breathing. God says, have no other gods but the one true God. That's a blessing. You hurt yourself and all those around you when you put anything else before God. Don't murder. That's a blessing that protects you, that protects other people created in the image of God. Don't covet. That's for your good. Every single command of God is a blessing. And we, may, we might need to change our brains about that. Because maybe when we think of law, we think of how oppressive our city is, how, oppre how oppressive California is. How many people do we know that we love that left California because of bad California law? That's not how we first think of law. When we first think of law, we think of the moral law of God and we praise God for sharing his moral law with us. It's a command, but it's a blessing. It's a required love. It's a directed love. You shall love the Lord your God. If you look in the New King James, which I have in your notes, that word Lord, and the word Lord is used three different times in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and you'll notice it's in all caps. If you're listening to Sunday School today, Brother Eric explained why that is. When we see the word Lord or the word God in all caps, that's the covenant name of God. Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you're going to pronounce it. And there's questions about how you pronounce it. Because it was so holy, people didn't pronounce it. We have no right to use the holy name of God because it's so holy. This, so our, our, our commentators, our translators, excuse me, they help us in so many of our versions by putting it like that. Some of the newer versions will just straight up say the word Jehovah. So we see it. We, we don't love any and every random God, remember, the original audience in Deuteronomy, this is God talking to the Israelites who just came out of Egypt where there were hundreds of gods. Remind yourself of Jesus' era. Jesus is living during the era where the people worshipped all those Greek gods and all those hundreds of deities. So at both times this, these words were said, they were said in a, in a world where there was polytheistic, where there were many, many, many different gods. The command is not love any god. The command is love the one true God. Your love is directed to the only one worthy of that kind of love. It's a directed love. It's a personal love or a relational love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. We don't just come to a place where we intellectually understand there's a God. Yeah, I've studied it all. I understand the Bible makes the most sense and I've accepted the fact that there is a God. Even the demons have that level of knowledge and acceptance according to the book of James. So it's not just the intellectual acceptance there's a God. It is the, the loving of the fact 
He is a God, my God. He rules and reigns this world. He rules and reigns my heart. It's a love according to John 1.12 that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. Those perfect words, believe and receive. It leads to repentance. It leads to love. God, my God. It's a required love. It's a directed love. It's a personal love. It's a complete love. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. According to commentator William Hendrickson, God's wholehearted love for us must not be answered in a half-hearted manner. Really good quote. Love God with every fiber of our being. That's the first great command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. According to verse 37, excuse me, verse 38, that's the first great command, but then verse 39, there's a second that's similar. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I want to, before we get into the command, let's notice there's a first and there's a second. There are priorities. Growing in biblical wisdom is growing to understand when God prioritizes, we mimic those priorities. We embrace the priorities that God gives us. And so this might be, you know, if we're leaning on the emotional end, maybe we're like, ah, shouldn't I love my spouse the most? Shouldn't I love my kids the most? First of all, I've met parents that love their kids most. I don't want my kids around those kids. Those kids are spoiled rotten. I appreciate the love, but the priorities are out of whack. And I am well aware of the fact when I love God first of all and most of all, that's how I'm best equipped to love my wife. I love her better when I love God first. I love my kids better when I love God first. I love you guys better when I love God first. Someone told me when my wife and I, when we were engaged to get married, he said, you've got to keep in mind God is between you and your wife. And you grow closer to her as you grow closer to the Lord. But you got to keep God in between. You have to love God first. And that's appropriate. It's not selfish of God to say so. Again, that's a blessing for us. So we, first of all, we love the Lord our God with everything within us. And then we love our neighbor as ourself. And you see in the Roman numeral 3, letter B, that was also taken from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And there again, that's Lord all caps. That's again the covenant name of God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We, we are to have a love for God very much, but as we keep the commands, we are best equipped to keep those commands as we love our neighbors just as we love ourselves. And just in case we misread this, because there is an idea that this is a command to love ourselves. This is not written in the sense God is telling us to love ourselves. This is written in the sense God knows we're selfish creatures that already love ourselves. So because we already have that love for ourselves, 
direct it to others. Okay. The, ver- the last verse of our text, verse 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. As we continue reading through the New Testament, we see the role love plays in obedience to the commands. Love fulfills the law. Look with me, if you will. Roman numeral three, letter C. It's in your notes, Romans 13, verses eight through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there's any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's draw this out. This is revolutionary. Uh, Dylan, do you have the slide that has the Ten Commandments? Pull that, please. Now, I don't know about you. I don't have the brain cells to memorize 613 laws of Moses. I can do 10. I should do 10. But even if I struggle with 10, if I understand love fulfills the law, I've got some help. You'll notice, I already talked about priorities. As you look at the 10 commandments, God has priorities in the 10 commandments. You look at the first four. The first four commandments, that's my relationship to God. The vertical command. The last six of the ten, that revolves around my relationship to others, the horizontal. God starts with how we treat him, how we love him, and then goes on how we treat others, how we love others. Now, Now look at how love fulfills the law. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, my love for God prevents me from taking his name in vain. I won't do that because I love him. My love for God keeps me from building an idol because I know even if I have the artistic ability of Eric, I can't make something worthy of being in his great image. He's too perfect for that. He's too lovely for that. So I show my love for him in my daily living by not creating an idol. I show my love for him by not worshiping anything above and before him. I show my love for him by remembering in the first page of the Bible, he shows me the week. He worked six days and rested one, and I honor him, and I serve him, and I love him by being a faithful worker for six days and faithfully resting for one. When I'm moved and guided by love, obedience flows. My love for others. When I love you with the love that I'm supposed to have for you, I'm not going to steal from you. I respect the fact that property belongs to you, and I won't take it unjustly, nor will I want anyone else to take it unjustly out of my love for you. My love for you keeps me from bearing false witness against you, lying to you, and spreading horrible rumors about you. My love for you keeps me from coveting those things that are yours. My love for you keeps me, my love for my wife keeps me from committing adultery. My love for, my, for others, ladies created in the image of God, keeps me from thinking about them in a lustful way. 
My love for you and my love for others keeps me from not just murdering you physically, but having those bitter thoughts about you in my heart. My love for my parents causes me to honor them no matter what stage in my life I am. Love leads me to obedience. Love fulfills and as Jesus tells us, helps us understand, because the Pharisees outwardly kept all sorts of laws. But God said, that's not honoring. Your outward actions seem to be going through the process of doing what God said, but it's not behind a heart of love. Love that causes us to obey. As Christians should be known being people. Some things we do in love may not be received lovingly by others, and we can't help that. But we can help our hearts. We can work very, very aggressively on our hearts to make sure that we have what God is requiring us, that we have a love for him and a love for others. And just so we're on the same page, this is sanctification. So this is not I earn favor before God and save myself love. This is you've already been saved, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. You are made in the image of God and God is so those of you made in his image, saved by his grace. Father in heaven, you, you know my heart and you know how much these verses have convicted my heart. Past few weeks of study in this amazing passage. You know how important it is that we be loving and you state for us in the scripture how great your love is for us. We come before you freely and boldly because of your great love for us that was shown in the person and work of Jesus. As we approach Resurrection Sunday, may we be reminded in a greater way of your great love for us. May that serve as a reminder, may that spur us and give us a greater desire to truly fulfill these two great commands. To love you with every fiber of our being, and to love those around us with a great We can't do these things without your strength. So pray for your strength. Pray for your guidance. Pray for your wisdom. Pray for your love. Pray for these things.